So, good evening. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to talk to the most influential uh, Catholic inter intellectual alive today, Mr. E. Michael Jones. Uh, we'll, we'll touch a few subjects tonight. Uh, the inevitable motu proprio, maybe the letter I, I received, and I won't have time to, to write uh, an answer. And also to touch maybe uh, some of the white boys' uh, themes before the, the the big debate. Right. Okay. So actually, actually, I'd like to start off by asking you about the the Croatian right. You mentioned this in a letter to me. You have a special right in Croatia. You've never had the Latin mass in Croatia. That's right. All this uh, Latin debate was was going on here around a millennia ago it was uh, it was uh, active in in 10th century even in night i think but the height was in 10th century and uh, the statue of grgurninski the, the grgurninski was a bishop and he was uh, he was like a pivotal figure in this in this debate now this is the statue in split is that the one That's you're right. talking about? The one that was That's done right. by Mestrovich? That's right. Mestrovich was a Freemason. And Mestrovich saw uh, Grgurninski as somebody that will that will embody the Croatian pride and like steer, it, steer the, the church and the people in the, on the path of the national independence. And, and um, you know, all this. It was, it, it was uh, his, his, his spin <laughs> on the issue in his day. Uh, it, the statue is, is rather young. The original, original uh, actor, uh, Grgorninski, was living uh, one millennia ago. Uh, and he was representing the, the we call it Glagolashi. Uh, th those were uh, priests and bishop that favored the uh, uh, Croatian, let's say, at that time, spoken language to be used in the liturgy. Yeah, uh, a lot of people have attacked me. Uh, a lot of people have attacked me for a lot of reasons, but uh, one, uh, saying that there are other rights in the Catholic Church, and so why are, why are you just picking on the, the Tridentine right? Why are you? Why are you? Uh, why should that be singled out for punishment when there are all these other rights? But it's uh, the point that I was trying to make, or the, what I saw in my own experience here uh, in the 30, 40 years I've been doing this magazine, is that the Tridentine right was weaponized uh, uh, in or, or after after Ecclesia Day which took place in 1980, and before Samorum Pontificorum. So it was being turned into an ideological uh, movement uh, early on that was closely allied with conservatism, neoconservatism, which meant that it suppressed certain topics uh, as conservatism did. That's what happened. So uh, it, it, was, this, was your mass, was this Croatian mass ever weaponized? Or was it weaponized from the beginning? Isn't that what that statue was about? 
is it a, yeah. a kind of weaponization of Croatian nationalism with his finger, his finger pointing at Rome, wagging his finger at Rome? Yeah, yeah. That was that was a that was an effort, let's say, uh, a liberal effort uh, to, to to let's say to to remove Croatia from this uh, Austro-Hungarian uh, Catholic reactionary uh, environment and to push it into the more liberal orbit, into the union with the South Slavs, and and it was that agenda. So when, basically. When when did Mestrovich do this statue? Ah, we are talking about, uh, let's say, early 20th century, I guess. Mestrovich was alive uh, after the, also after the Second World War, so it must be maybe interwar period, I guess. Is it after the war? Is it after World War II, that Yugoslavia? I'm not sure if the statue is, is post-war or pre-war, but... Because we have we a lot about of... That period. We have a yep. lot of Mestrovich here. There's the uh, statue of Moses at Notre Dame. There's the statue of the Christ being taken down from the cross at Notre Dame. That's in marble. And also in Chicago, there are statues of Indians that Mestrovich did in, uh, I think it's Millennium Park uh, in Chicago. So he was, he, he was pr pretty active here in the United States. And I'm assuming this was all after World War II. Yes. I'm assuming too. <laughs> yes, he he was he was very. He's an interesting figure. I don't I don't really know much about him, but I know that uh, he came up with with a strong, uh, let's say, Enlightenment uh, <laughs> Masonic background. But he also defended uh, Archbishop Stepinac. So it, I don't know, kind of split personality. He was some criticize him to to some of his, uh, let's say, uh, sacral, uh, sacral statues to being uh, subversively modern. But I, I don't know, my, my eye, <laughs> I have a modern eye, you know, I, <laughs> I cannot detect that. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm not yeah. an expert on that. Yeah, well, the, the big weaponization in Croatia was uh, the rosary and Marian devotion. Uh, yes. And that became part of a political movement. Uh, and I'm talking about Medjugorje. That was, no, nobody over here understands that. Uh, no, everybody just accepted uh, the standard explanation. The, the, the publicity here became really big toward the end of the 1980s. And then suddenly all of this uh, material, these full color photos, magazines and glossy full color photos of these attractive young seers started flooding Catholic circles here in the United States in the late 80s. And uh, in 88, I went to uh, Mostar, went to Medjugorje and then went to Mostar. I talked with Bishop Zanich, who was, uh, who was uh, the ordinary of the diocese of Mostar at that time. Talked to him about this, this type of stuff. Uh, and then after I uh, left uh, Mostar, I flew to Rome and I met with the ambassador to the Vatican at that point. It was uh, uh, Frank Shakespeare. And I said, uh, "Did the CIA, was the CIA support Medjugorje? Was the CIA involved in Medjugorje? And he said, well, I can't answer that question. And then he went on to say, 
but it is the type of thing we would support. And so he basically started talking to me about solidarity being the northern uh, Slavic uh, resistance to communism and Medjugorje doing this, fulfilling the same role. And then I went and sent a, a Freedom of Information Act request to the CIA and got back uh, 20 pages and uh, 19 and a half of them were blocked out. And then they had the goal to bill me. They wanted me to pay $150 for that. So I defied the CIA. How, how does that sound? I mean, I told them, I told them to cool. take, take their bill and stick it. I, I'm not paying your bill. And I lived to tell the tale. No CIA agent came here and to collect that bill. So, but, but this was a weaponization was obvious. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we, the Marian, the Marian uh, devotion is strong in Croatia even before that. Uh, this, this, I see this uh, Medjugorje, some, some kind of uh, at this time in the 80s, it was it, the people needed some kind of a sign, some kind of a guidance or something. But the well, T Tito had just died. Tito died one year before the apparition started. That's and right. the whole the whole uh, case. I remember looking at uh, cross the Naredva. I was standing sitting out in front of the bishop's palace in Mostar. I look across to Naredva. There's a big mountain there, and in stones is written Tito, we love you, yeah. on, on the top of the mountain in, in Croatian. Yes. So I was really impressed with that. But there was a kind of disorientation because that was uh, Tito held Yugoslavia together. And it was clear that something was something was afoot. Something was starting to happen. And this is the point where <clears throat> Father Zovko started putting the girb on the altar, which was broke the law. The girb being the symbol of the Ustasha era uh, in, in, in Croatia, put that on the altar. I went to Shiroki Brieg, the Franciscan monastery, and there on the wall were all of these Ustasha soldiers. It was kind of like a shrine to Ustasha soldiers. So that part uh, was not getting uh, made public, but it was clear that this was there was a kind of political manipulation of the apparitions going on from the beginning, if you had the eyes to see. Well, yeah, the, the, the prayers in Medjugorje have <laughs> always had like their own, uh, let's, let's say, their own path. I mean, there is this uh, century century old uh, Herzegovina case. Ah, we talked about it uh, earlier. Their their feud with the local bishop and their because because of the history that happened there and their relationship with the Turks and and all this stuff. But if you are looking for the source uh, for the source of the breakup of Yugoslavia, if that's what you're aiming at, uh, the source are I think that most people here agree. Are the minor strikes, the strikes of the miners uh, in Kosovo. It was a huge wave of strikes, and uh, you know the government had to deal deal with it in some way. It could have been dealt as it is, like <laughs> the poorest people in Yugoslavia having a really hard time, you know, being oppressed. But the then uh, a guy came into power through uh, this uh, color of revolution that's also called. Yogurt Revolution. It was uh, Milosevic, and he uh, he dealt with this huge uh, demonstration uh, in Kosovo. He he spin it 
as some kind of a nationalist uh, struggle. So by doing that, it, it was it was just just free fall from there on. Yeah. That, that's that's like some kind of a consensus, and it's really happened. You know? <laughs> it, the the Mezhogorye, <laughs> it was important. It was important. It was. It attracted a lot of people. It got used, but the importance of that, I don't really think it's. It had it had it had bigger influence on the Catholic Church than on onto the Yugoslavia and the, the and the politics here. In, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. That's my opinion, at least. Yeah. yeah well, well, now we've got the uh, the banning of the of the Latin Mass. I tried to yeah. write about it. Everybody's everybody's talking as if I banned the Latin Mass. I can't believe the type of comments I'm getting now, uh, because I'm trying to understand it, and I don't say something simple like Latin Mass good, vernacular Mass bad. Uh, I'm demonized here as a an anti-Latin Mass guy, which yeah, is yeah. not it's not the issue. The the it's not the issue. This has been weaponized. Okay, and and most people don't even know how it started. It started when the Lefevreite, when Archbishop Lefebvre uh, consecrated four bishops uh, in defiance of Rome. He started his own parallel church. When he did that, he went into schism. Most people don't know what schism is. It's a deliberate breaking of the union of the uh, the communion of the Catholic faithful out of fear of contamination. It's what St. Saint Augustine talks about it in his treatise on the Donatist and his treatise on uh, baptism. So uh, he's he's very clear about it. There's no point in talking about doctrine because it's not based on doctrine. It's based on lack of charity, according to St. Augustine. And that becomes an issue that uh, nobody, nobody knows. They can't discuss it. You can't discuss schism because nobody knows what it is or what it's based on. Yeah. I've lost you for a minute, but now I'm 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 uh, I, I'm, I see where where, where I'm talking about uh, when it it was uh, it was when it was debated here in Croatia a thousand years ago uh, the danger the dan the actually Vatican was suppressing the the spoken language and the the local people and the local clergy were all, all everybody was for it you know like we should we should <laughs> we should use the use the local language in the liturgy and there is basically no no logical explanation why we shouldn't because uh, we were on the on the let's say on the uh, catholic orthodox border and on the other side just just across the border uh, the the eastern christians were using uh, their language now you 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 said this language is Staroslavensk. Is that what you called it? Yes, it's uh, it's uh, called Church Slavonic. Old Church, Church Slavonic. Slavonic. Old Church Slavonic. Okay. Now, yes. did the people at that time, a thousand years ago, did they understand it? Was it the vernacular yes. a thousand they, years they ago? Even even you, if if with with some effort, you could even understand it today. If you are, it's it's some has these old roots, but the language is very archaic. But right. the people at that time could understand it. So the, you know, there were the, the debate, the the other the other uh, side, the, the the Roman side at the time, the Vatican. There were guys saying that 
no, no, it could not be used in, in the in the liturgy because on the crucifix you had this design <laughs> uh, on, on Latin, Greek and Aramaic. So only those three languages can be used in the liturgy. Huh? And then the guy, the, then the Croatian guy comes out and says, well, Pontius Pilate wrote that. <laughs> like, yeah. is, he, is he like mandating dogma? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was actually funny because uh, what, what, uh, what Vatican wanted to prevent is to like lose control of the Croatian church because you have all these all these priests and bishops uh, speaking to, to the people in a language that they did not understand and that what the, the, the afraid the, the fear was that it will like deteriorate and it, it will just float away uh, so that it was it was suppressed and it was resolved in the synod of split when basically uh, the, the local bishop uh, Grigor Minsky and the, and the political power, the, the King Tomislav, if I remember correctly, again agreed that, that Rome is really center of the church and that they will they will be obedient and uh, Rome reprociated uh, with allowing it to go on, but the condition was that uh, all the clergy has to know Latin, <laughs> like, because Latin was the official language of the church and you could not be a Catholic priest if you don't know Latin. So right. it kind of it it settled things down and it, it, ended, it ended in a, in a, in a good way. What, uh, who was the temporal power at that? Was Croatia an independent kingdom at that point? At that point, yes. Uh, King Tomislav was temporal power. And then who took over after that? Was it Venice? Did you become part of Venice? I mean, Dubrovnik was a, a Venetian city, wasn't it? Not really. Uh, Dubrovnik actually sold a, a piece of, its, of his territory to the Turks just to avoid having a, a land frontier with Venice. <laughs> just to avoid having any, any, any land contact with Venice. They, they sold a piece of their land to the Turks just to, to, to have a buffer zone between them and Venice. They, they were actually uh, like uh, competitors. Uh, right. What happened after Tomislav, uh, it was this, this big creation, uh, not, not immediately after Tomislav, but the uh, Croatian kingdom fell apart after uh, King Zvonimir. It was this uh, interesting tale about the king. Uh, and that that uh, just got a call to join the Crusades. So he is. I think I told you the story. He assembles his generals and he says, "Okay, we have our kingdom now. We have to go <laughs> and crusade." And nobody wants to go. They said, "Well, we are Croatians. We have our Croatian kingdom. Why should we go anywhere?" And so they are having this discussion, and the king just uh, cuts it and says, "Okay, I'm your king. We'll go." And so uh, everybody there, all this nobility, the generals, uh, they basically kill him, kill him uh, on the sleep in his dream. And he wakes up and curses them and says, uh, you will be ruled by a foreign power for a thousand years or something like that. And from that point on, uh, Croatian kingdom like uh, disappeared, basically it was uh, there was this Turk Turkish uh, conquests from the from the east, 
we had Venice from, from the sea and Austria, let's say, from the continent. And it's kind of, you had in one point, you had this uh, reliquia, reliquiarum, like the leftovers of the leftovers of the Croatian states. And in the 90s, when the curse expired, like uh, we got our independence back. So the, the moral of the story was, uh, okay, are you Croatians first or are you Catholic first? That was the, that was the point of, the, of this legend. You know, okay, you are Croatian, but what are your priorities? You know, are you listening to the Pope or are you listening for the national national interests? Yes, I can see that working out in a different way in the Orthodox world. Yes, without a Pope, or where every every uh, every branch of the religion had its own Pope, and yeah. it led led to a kind of fragmentation. Because the same the same forces would be at work uh, among the Orthodox, but with no unifying factor. Yes, as soon as soon as you as you go independent from the from the from the let's say supranational sea of your religion, and you adopt the national language, and you have you pick your own clergy, you basically become uh, like a chosen people 2.0. You know you are. You start acting like uh, you start Judaizing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's always I'm saying. Uh, well, Saint Augustine uh, at his in his day uh, said that the the schismatics that he had to deal with were known as Donatists, and the Donatists were a Judaizing sect uh, that simply had that that fear of contamination. That if they if they were made too much contact with the world that they would become contaminated by it. And so they were always trying to withdraw into a kind of internal purity, uh, a purity of that was something like the elect, which is how the Puritans dealt with that. Uh, you know, you could, in order to be a, a member of their church, you had to be a member of the elect, which means you were a saint. Uh, and so it was a church full of saints uh, by definition. And then the big question came, well, what about the next generation? Is, is uh, sainthood inheritable uh, by your children? And the whole thing fell apart within one generation because they couldn't answer that question. They had something called the halfway covenant, which <laughs> tried to answer it, but it couldn't answer it. So that's the problem when you're a Judaizer. You're always going to run into that problem of, of, uh, of uh, how, do you deal, how do you deal with the world? And I'm saying I see the same thing in the Latin mass. Okay, it was a way, I'm, I'm talking about 30 years ago, because I wrote an article that appeared in Fidelity 30 years ago about uh, the Latin mass, about my experience with it. And it was basically a guy who took me aside and said, nothing's going to change until we go back to the Latin mass. So it just became a way of hiding out uh, among these people. Uh, and then uh, it, it became a way of avoiding certain issues. But over the course of time, there are certain issues that you couldn't avoid anymore. And that's where I entered the picture once again. An article by a guy named Eric Stryker came out and said that uh, the younger generation of traditionalists going to the Latin mass had read my book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. And they suddenly realized that this was the suppressed story here. That basically this was about the Jewish question. The whole thing was about the Jewish question. Because what happened with the translation was that all of those anti-Jewish passages got suppressed. 
in the in the new in the new right. Uh, and uh, no one was talking about this at the beginning, but then suddenly people started talking about it. Why were these passages being suppressed? And well, I go ahead. Well, I, in my opinion, well, the church has a right to you know to tone down the anti anti Jewish passages if if but even to even to ditch the the Latin language, but 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 only only if it's brings it only if has a cause i mean only if it fills a certain purpose and uh, and this purpose it cannot change its purpose you know it it was kind of the purpose of the church was given by by the founder who happens to be the messiah and no logos incarnate what i want to say is okay you can you can uh, delete or remove the, this uh, Jewish stuff if it's if they feel if it's if it's inappropriate, but you not you you you're not allowed you cannot contradict Jesus and stop bringing the good news to the Jews. I mean that, that's the problem. Well, so wait a minute, you're you're contradicting yourself. Which is it? Do you have the right? Does the church have the right to censor the gospel? Doesn't say Paul. Don't, is it, doesn't this amount to a censorship of the gospel? Okay, the church. The church has a right to to define the liturgy, not to censor the gospel, but it has no right to stop pro proclaiming the gospel and to, to the Jews. That that's that's the right. That's the, 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 the liturgy has to uh, faithfully reflect the gospel. It seems to yeah. me. So what happened is that all of these. Passages that did reflect this, for example, the the uh, tenebrae uh, uh, ritual, uh, tenebrae rite on Good Friday, uh, was taken from Saint Augustine's uh, discussion of of the Jews killing Christ. Well, that's what happened, and suddenly it it becomes inconvenient. It becomes uh, uh, politically incorrect to talk about Jews being responsible for Christ, so they simply remove it. Well. Do they have a right? I, 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 no one's going to deny that the Pope or the church has the right to determine the parameters of the liturgy. Of course they have that right. But do they have a right to be ashamed of the gospel? Is that what it's going to come, is that what it come down to? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Because Jesus said, if you are, then you're not going to do well. I will be ashamed of you. If you deny me, I will deny you. Is that what we're talking about here? Are you are, are people ashamed of proclaiming the gospel or certain parts of it? I hope they're not. <laughs> but I hope so too. But I think that uh, it would be foolish to think that that's not the case. I think that there are certain. I think if there's one part of the gospel that the church uh, is now ashamed of, it's all these passages on conflict with the Jews, the Gospel of Saint John. Jews are mentioned 71 times. There's a conflict here. You can't get around this conflict. It is the fundamental conflict of human history, I would say, because it's the battle between Logos and anti-Logos, and this is where it comes to a crucial turning point, crucial turning point in human history. Can't deny it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the, the turning point of human history are, let's say, it's not the, the Jews of today, it's the new Israel. Say the uh, 
like uh, eh, this connects nicely to the letter you sent me. Uh, the letter that uh, that uh, was to to be published in the in the culture wars. You're talking about Yehuda Lipman's letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. The gentleman, but basically what what he writes in it, he says that the the Jews uh, like uh, promoted or supported the 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 Ustashas. So okay, but but the the intention of the letter, let's say in my in my view is. Like the the Jews supported the Ustasha, that means that the, the Jews were against the Serbs. That that makes the Serbs look good, something like that. I think that that was like the the under underlying idea. But but this this concept that <laughs> let's say that what the Jews do or what the Jews support is some kind of an axis of the of of, of the human history. I think it's obsolete. I think it's. It's like two thousand years obsolete. It's not not longer not longer important in that way, you know. Or is it more important now? The Jews have never had more power in human history than they have right now. Do you agree with that? I don't know. I mean, I if there could be, I really don't know how much power did they got. In the history, I mean, if we are talking about the entire human history. Well, let's talk about Rome, uh, where they were forced to live in a ghetto. Alexander the uh, Sixth, uh, as part of one of his celebrations, had a foot race. The Jews had to run a foot race, and he extended it for 100 meters uh, at a certain point just because he wanted to see them run faster or longer. This is a period where the church had a lot of power and the Jews did not have much power at all, political power. They had power through usury, and that was about it. Uh, but in our day, we've seen them parlay that power of usury into political power, serious political power, to the point where they, uh, I, you know, so I got uh, people said, I said that uh, they have total control over who becomes a saint. Maybe that's too strong, but I think they have veto power over who becomes a saint. And we had that discussion about Cardinal Stepinots, where uh, you and I and Alexander talked about uh, why that canonization was postponed. Was it the Orthodox or was it the Jews behind the scenes who didn't like Stepinots because he had something about Jews and their involvement in pornography? That letter. What do you what 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 do you think? Do they have veto power? It seems to me they do. Yeah, you, you made a strong case. You I made, think you did make make a strong case. Yeah. So if when when you die and they they start your canonization proceedings, the first thing that will happen is they'll have you uh, evidence that you talked to E. Michael Jones and therefore you're an anti-Semite and you won't become a saint. Yeah. I know you're disappointed, but uh, I, I if things go the way they are now, that's what's that that's what would happen. Happens with everybody. Now, this man, a poll got on my case and said that Cardinal Holland has made it to the first stage of canonization, servant of God. Well, Holland, like Stepinots, like every, virtually every single cardinal at this time, had bad things to say about the Jews. They all did. And they all started, but they all started by saying what the Nazis are proposing is not Catholic. That was what Holland said. He said, yeah, the Jews, you're right. Jews are involved in pornography. 
their, uh, you know, you shouldn't shop at their stores, but you shouldn't fall into this uh, German ideology either. It was classic secret Judaeus not. Yeah, yes, yes. I mean, the Stepinas was, of course, part of that tradition. I mean, he did, he did uh, accuse them of being behind abortion and pornography, which I see some similarities between yourself and him here. But uh, when it uh, when the war came, he was uh, more than very active in saving their lives. So, right. So it's, uh, that's that's the principle there. So I'm saying, uh, and the the extended version that I finally we're going to send off in the issue, that it's still uh, World War II that's determining our church policy right now. And I'm saying the crucial figure in this regard is not Francis. And it's not Pope John Paul II, it's Pope Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger. I think yeah. that this, is, this all revolves around his psychology. And I, I hate to, I, I mean, uh, basically what I'm saying is uh, we need to understand that psychology in order to understand what happened to the Latin mass. It's that simple. And I'm saying that the big change took place with Samorum Pontificum when he expanded the indult that Pope John Paul II had created, simply to keep those people from going into schism. John Paul II didn't want the people to follow the Latin Mass into schism. And so he made the Latin Mass available on a limited basis. And then Ratzinger comes along and expands it way beyond what that, and, makes, and basically turns it into a competing right. It's now a right that is competing with the vernacular right. And I'm That's saying... That's true. Yes, yeah. it was. Did, there are did, some, also some moves uh, Ratzinger did that are like raise eyebrows, I think is the term. Uh, I know his, his vision of the church in the future. It's basically a small church, you know, small groups like, like the Benedictines in the fall of the Roman Empire, like it's kind of like he has this vision of withdrawal from the culture and becoming like Catholic Amish or something like that. That's the way I read. I read it. Or, I, uh, it. Some people say there was an abandonment of the enculturated Catholicism that you could see in places like uh, Bavaria or Poland, which are both very Catholic places. Yes. Uh, but uh, Bavaria seems to have gone uh, from bad to worse because Germany has gone from bad to worse. And the, the, the question is, so I'm saying, so what it comes out here is that there's a reform of the liturgy under Benedict. And so he makes the Latin mass available. As soon as the word gets out that he's going to expand that, the committee of uh, German Jewish dialogue sends him a letter and says, don't do it. Because this is not really about the Latin mass. It's about the Jewish question. And if you uh, make this, this Tridentin mass available, you'll bring back all those anti-Jewish passages. And then uh, you will defeat all of the achievements we've had in Catholic-Jewish dialogue ever since the Second Vatican Council. That letter went out two months before he issued a statement. And then they, the letter also specified, if you do this, it means you intentionally, they use the word intentionally, you intentionally want to subvert Catholic 
Jewish dialogue. Now, he got that letter and then he went ahead and did it anyway, in spite of their warning. This leads me to believe that uh, that may have been the intention. Maybe he did know that. And I'm saying that we have uh, evidence of this passive aggressive behavior. In other words, you've got, he's got two conflicting sets of commands that he's trying to bring together. Jo Joseph Ratzinger was 20 years old in 1947. The winner of 46-47 is known in German history as Das Hungerjahr. That's the year that the German people almost starved to death. And it wasn't, uh, oh, the crop failed. No, it was intentional. It was part of what is called the Morgenthau Plan. The Morgenthau Plan was based on Henry Morgenthau, named after Henry Morgenthau, who was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Jewish Secretary of the Treasury. This was Jewish revenge against the German people. No other way of talking about it. And uh, this is when Cardinal Frings of Cologne uh, issued a statement to the German people, German Catholics, and said, if you do not have enough food and there's a warehouse near you where the Americans are storing food, you have a right to go into that warehouse and take that food. And it's not theft. Same with coal. You can take the coal from a coal train. It's not theft because you need to do that because this is necessity. Your family is going to starve to death. They're going to freeze to death if you don't do that. You have a right to do that. Now, I'm saying that Joseph Ratzinger was 20 years old. And as a 20-year-old, he could not know, not know about this. He had to be aware of this type of thing. When I was living in Germany, the Germans talked to me about Morgenthau. That's, that's in the 1970s. This is 30 years later. They were still talking about Morgenthau and what his plan was for Germany. Explain to me why. <laughs> uh, do you know where, where, uh, where Pope, uh, Pope Benedict XVI celebrated his 81st birthday? No, where? You tell me. In the White House. Uh, the the Miss Bush baked a cake or something like that. Yes, I remember that. I remember she that. I remember helicopter then. I mean, how how that fits in? Well, that's what I'm saying. So here is a man, uh, and and I've also have to mention his great uncle, Georg Ratzinger, wrote a book called Judicious Erbsleben, Jewish Business Practices. Well, you can't have a great uncle like that who is famous in Bavaria. And certainly famous, well known obviously to Ratzinger, uh, what he said about the Jews is part of his personality. And then it comes to 47 and now the Jews are trying to destroy us. And then you've got, that's one thing you know as a German and a Catholic. And then you've got the social engineering that is imposed on you by the American government because you are a conquered country. So how do you reconcile these two things? You've got two different sets of experiences, two different sets of commands. How do you reconcile them? You resign, I guess. Well, this is, uh, I'm saying this resignation is part of his passive aggressive personality. I mean, I felt that the resignation was basically uh, an abandonment. He abandoned the people of the church. 
He, this is, he sets out on this program to reform the liturgy. He brings the Latin mass back. Now, bringing the Latin mass back, he's also bringing back the anti-Jewish passages. And he knew that everybody knew that. The first thing that news right after he does some more on Pontificum is Abe Foxman of the ADL. The next day he says, this is a setback for Catholic Jewish relations. The same thing with the American Jewish Committee, Rabbi Rosen. They told him he knew that. And I'm saying he did it anyway. And I'm saying this is a way of having a kind of passive aggressive behavior. So on the one hand, you stick with the, the liturgy. You say you're reforming the vernacular liturgy. You make a few changes. And that stays pretty much the same. But in the language that nobody can understand, namely Latin, you bring back all the anti-Jewish stuff. So you do it both ways. You have this, it, it corresponds to his contradictory personality. That's interesting. What about his his Muslim stance? I mean, I don't understand. <laughs> he's, he's uh, let's say, uh, his talk, I, mean, I don't I don't remember where, where the talk was. It was like... Uh, Regensburg. This is Regensburg, right, yeah. right after he becomes Pope, he goes to Regensburg and he gives a talk about uh, Islam, which yeah. sets off the entire Islamic world, angers the entire Islamic world. He did not like Muslims, but uh, he, I, when, when, he, when he went to... The first city after he came to Germany, I forget which city it was, it might have been Cologne, uh, he went to the synagogue, but the Muslims had to go to his residence. There were two, it's clear there were two two separate two separate standards there. It, it sounds like like this, uh, let's say, uh, Americanist uh, conservative uh, position. Well, that's Time magazine said that Ratzinger was the first American pope. Was this conservatism? Is this a, is this neo? Is it was he a neocon? Was he a neoconservative? Well, he um, uh, George Bush making his, his birthday party, and he's like bashing the the Muslims. It's like be <laughs> I don't know. You're the expert. <laughs> it just seems to me that that that's the type. So so you made your piece. He also said right before he became pope, he gave a speech about. Um, what it was like to be at the Second Vatican Council. And he said, you know, we started to realize that there was an American Enlightenment that wasn't as bad as the French Enlightenment. Well, I think that became dogma. That became dogma at the Vatican, you know? And so that led this, and then, he, then he would say things like, there was a council of the media. In other words, it wasn't the real council, it was a council. Of, well, what are you talking about there? Are you talking about Time Magazine? then be specific because Time Magazine was a front for the CIA and the CIA did try to influence the council through John Courtney Murray. We know that now, but why can't you be more specific? Why can't you be more specific about these things uh, uh, so that we can deal with them? If you want to reform the liturgy, uh, you can do it either way. I don't care. Bring back the Latin mass. You have the power to do that. Why don't you do that? Get rid of the vernacular mass. Well, you couldn't do that. Uh, he couldn't really uh, abolish it. He expanded it. He expanded the Latin mass, but he didn't make it normative for everyone. And so what you have is two competing masses. And so at this point, this became significant in places like the United States. There were large, in South Bend, Indiana, there's a parish that only does the Trident mass. 
And the question, and so the people go there after a while and they start to feel, well, it's superior. But obviously, you think you would have to think it's why would you go there if you didn't think it was better? Right. And so you go there for years and you obviously think it's better. And then when you start thinking that's better, then you start thinking the other one's worse. And so the real the other one uh, is denigrated by by the, the fact that you make this choice. It's inescapable. And I think that that's what Francis dealt with. I don't think he dealt with it in the best way, but I mean, I think that's what he was trying to deal with. And I think there may have been an agenda for the, the Jesuits uh, not liking this uh, group of people that were obviously conservative and countercultural. That's what the mass had, had become for those people. Do you remember the, 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 the clericalism? Uh, what I was, <laughs> if you're talking about the, the Tridentine Mass and the, the Novus Ordo, if you put aside the Latin thing, because because in this particular, let's say from the, from this traditional Croatian perspective, uh, the Latin was was out uh, years ago. Not everywhere, but uh, where I live, it really did not did not took root. So, if you put the language aside, what you got, you got the uh, the altar moved, and you got the priest basically facing the people non-stop. If you forget forget about the Latin about the language part, right? And if you <laughs> if you are faced like with all this all these pious people like looking at you if you are say a bit narcissistic you are you become some become some kind of a celebrity or some kind of a right you know performer and what what goes naturally with it are well you know the groupies <laughs> i don't know if that's the word you use there the people, the people that are attracted to you. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> the clericalism comment uh, being being uh, being a factor, kind of you can you can argue in in that direction that it, it's it's made like like this this turning this this novel sort of uh, did open a certain position here that was. It was not maybe. I don't know. Well, that, that's what happened in Medjugorje. It was that yeah. they were facing the people, and the uh, the the uh, the Franciscans got all kinds of problems with the pilgrims. Uh, sexual molestation. Both uh, Vlasic and Zolko were involved in that. They both got suspended because of that. And now Vlasic has been defrocked completely because he simply would not stop doing that. So uh, that that certainly happened in uh, in Medjugorje. When when you had the traditional mass here. Did the priest face the people, even though he was speaking? No, no. It was it was the the Latin rite was uh, was the same. The priest were was uh, faced at Orientum. Uh, I mean, I don't remember, but <laughs> of course. But uh, it was it was the the rite was uh, Western, but the language was uh, was Church Slavonic. Yeah. Uh, it it did in the, in the 20th century in my father's age. It was not not as often. It was uh, this language was spoken only at ceremonies and at some big feasts because right. 
the language evolved in such way that it was not clearly understandable anymore. We had, right. They knew it, but it was like, so then came the second council and it changed. Did you say someone tried to bring back the Latin mass in Croatia? Not actually, not actually, but well, <laughs> the people I'm in contact in and the, the stuff I read, it's it's pretty pretty much silent here. <laughs> the Latin mass in Croatia, I think it's it feels the, the movement is it feels like very very uh, American influenced, or right. let's say conservative yeah. influenced, yeah. because yeah. the tradition in, in Croatia is is this glagolitic and old church Slavonic. And it's mostly old people and does not have a huge young following. But the young guys that are following the Latin mass that's an, does not doesn't have anything to do with Croatian tradition. Right. It's totally totally a novelty, a Western novelty, basically. The question is, was it a conservative? Was it American conservatism? Was that bound up? I mean, I think Ratzinger was very sympathetic to American conservatism. And was well, this American, American conservatism is basically anti-Catholic. <laughs> like 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 uh, the, the main two the main two European conservatism post First World War European conservatism were also basically and let's say anti-Catholic. Is the, there was there a conservative? I talked to Caspar uh, uh, von Schlenk Notzing in 1990, right after the Berlin Wall came down. He wrote an absolutely brilliant book about social engineering in Germany called Charakterwäsche. And someone gave me a copy recently. I, I included it, uh, quoted it repeatedly in my uh, chapter on Werner Heisenberg, Jewish science. But anyway, he, he told me, uh, and I met him in uh, Munich in 1990. He said, conservatism never caught on in Europe. It's just not part of. He says it's an Anglo phenomenon. It's it's tied up with England, with the English language, and with America, and it doesn't have any real roots in Germany. And he said, told me basically that he failed. It was his mission to bring conservatism to Germany. He felt that he had failed in that regard. Well, you have you have some kind of a reaction to the hyper uh, liberalism. Uh, so basically, the the, the first. Well, I guess some, some kind of a historical consensus is that the First World War was a defeat of liberalism or parliamentary liberalism or something like that. And the reactions like were, were uh, neo-Nazism in Germany and uh, fascism in Italy. And both were anti-Catholic movements, basically. The, the, the fascism was basically what would you call today uh, Corporatism. They were the driving force behind this Italian fascism and also behind the Sustasha movement were big industrials and corporations of this day. They were like uh, astroturf. They were the corporate vision of, of a reaction to hyper liberalism. But they did not like the, the Catholics. You know? <laughs> the, the, the actually, actually, 
the first, uh, uh, let's say, the first uh, um, big propagandistic trials for pedophilia and for sexual mis misconduct of Catholic clergy happened in, in, in Germany in the 30s, in 35. The Nazis were were first to do that. They also had this, this Dachau camp, basically, <laughs> they were taking Catholics there. Right. One guy, one guy from Kirk ended up there. <laughs> so, and <laughs> I think that, that you you kind of have history repeating here. You have this corporate, corporate, let's say, sponsored liberalism, and then some kind of a reaction to that corporate liberalism will be again some kind of a controlled opposition or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, conservatism is dead over here. Uh, they, there's a Republican Party, but there's no ideology driving it anymore. It's just dead because it cannot address the fundamental issue of our age, which is basically the private private entities that are now de facto government. Google is government here. Google makes the rules. We had the press secretary, Don, uh, uh, Joe Biden's press secretary said, oh, yeah, we work closely with Facebook. Well, wait a minute. If you work closely with Facebook, then Facebook's part of the government. And Facebook should be controlled like a government entity. You should be have, basically have rules and rights. But they have it both ways now. And that's why conservatism is meaningless. Because it, it came into existence in the 19, late 40s. Road to servitude. Stalinism is kind of like the ideology, uh, big government, and so on and so forth. And that's not the, not the case anymore. We have weak government. Wherever you have... It's weak government in the sense of any government trying to defend the rights of the people. It's weak. You have government basically as the agent of oligarchic institutions like the World Health Organization right now. And the government is a lackey of the World Health Organization and imposing these rules on, uh, you know, uh, the, the people uh, without any type of democratic uh, regress. Oh, yeah. Here... That there is a problem uh, in, in trying to define morality. I mean, like the the ruling class, okay, the oligarchs call it the, like you want. Uh, they they that there is no. I mean, they have no morality uh, system, to, some 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 consistent <laughs> morality that they can present as an alternative. To the, to the let's say traditional Catholicism. So yeah. what you get here now is basically uh, when science that is already well questionable. <laughs> I mean, this COVID pandemic like uh, deteriorated the, the the status of science, but kind of uh, what is what is filling the gap here is now uh, animal rights in. in that I think that is 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 coming, like to to beef it up. Yes. If you want to debate uh, morality with some young smart person in Croatia, the topic that comes out is do you eat meat? You know? How about grapes? Do grapes, <laughs> do grapes have rights? We're not that yet. We're not there yet. You know. You know. You know is... Grapes. You know. Grapes have. They have a soul. You know that grapes have a soul. So if they have a soul, shouldn't they have rights? And aren't you violating those grapes' rights by crushing them? 
I mean, just crushing them, crushing them, literally. Have you thought of this? It's it's right around the corner, Tony. They're going to come for you. Stop giving ideas, huh? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the last time, the last thing I wanted to mention is the the, the future debate you will be you will be having with the, with the, you know with geneticists and the white guys and let's the white say, guys. Yeah. Well, yes, I I'm for, I I I bitterly disappointed that we're not having this debate in Zagreb. I was looking forward to going to Zagreb. I can't think of a better place to debate the whole white guy issue than uh, Yugoslavia, where race had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with anything, anything. Uh, and the last time I said it, I think Tom Sunich popped up and started calling in and talking about uh, how he was a white guy. This is just ridiculous. So I wanted to debate it in Zagreb, but Frody um, said you can't, you can't count on any uh, any getting any group of people together because the government may impose new COVID regulations. Yeah. And we could oh. all be locked down for for months in Zagreb because uh, something or other, you know, somebody bureaucrat decided that there was a, a spike in COVID cases. How do they define race at all? How do you define what's the white race? Is it, the, is it uh, only the skin color or it has to do with, with actual genetics or... or uh, or uh, descendants, you know, ancestry. That's that's a good question because it's obvious that there are certain characteristics that uh, people have physical characteristics. But then the question is, are there meaningful? Uh, do these characteristics have any meaning? So, for example, uh, you are either right-handed or left-handed, and that meaning gets smuggled into that if you the italian word for left is sinistra and we have the english word sinister which means that left-handed people are bad right well uh not really nobody really takes that seriously uh there may be people who feel they're being discriminated against because they're left-handed i know that people uh, of an older generation were forced to write with their left right hand even though they wanted to write with their left hand that's the type of, uh, you could extrapolate this to race. And I basically, it's, I, it, we don't have time anymore. I would have, I, I, there's really no point. I'm just going to do the debate. I'm going to do it on Zoom, one more Zoom meeting, and, and we'll just try and deal with these issues uh, there. But, so uh, just, what I would like to, to hear from this, uh, from the guys is how do they, I mean, the genetics, when you when they talk race, would, would, let's say regular guy thinks it's like my father's father's father and yours father's father's father. If they are related, we like belong to let's say the same race. So, but the the, the science of genetics has a word for such a group, you know, for for a group of people that down the line share the same father. Uh, those groups are called the uh, haplogroups. groups. So right. Basically. You go down the line, down the paternal line, and you get to the same man, the one man. Right. And so the genetics is the science, the science letters to these groups. Right. So basically, <laughs> the letter H is a very interesting one. You have the, the haplogroup H. 
that says you can you can take out your blood sample and see what Hapo group you belong to. And what comes out is that, uh, uh, for example, uh, Barack Obama, your president, former, uh, then Muammar Gaddafi, the Libyan president, uh, have the same father somewhere down the line. Um, but also the same father <laughs> is the Albert Einstein's father, Adolf Hitler's father, <laughs> and you know, and I don't know, Wright's brother, father. <laughs> it's it makes no sense at all. No, because if you if you try to to define uh, race as a common ancestor, as a uh, as a common father, some some European white father, uh, then you just take out your blood sample and you see if it fits. The right. only only European, uh, let's say, group that, that comes from a European father is I. Uh, it's the letter I. And uh, I think that uh, maybe five, I don't know, never, never saw actually uh, uh, American hypo groups. But in Europe, in Europe, it's very rare hypo group. I mean, like 80% of Europeans are not of European descent. It's it's like Asian, African, and Middle Eastern. Uh, it's 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 a it's a genetic mixture that makes no sense. And I never heard yeah. never heard a white guy uh, explain it in a, in some in some logical way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So were my two cents about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll okay. find out. We'll find out. Yeah. Mike, it was nice talking to you. Always a pleasure, Tony. Someday. Hope that you will come in Zagreb one day. Yeah, next year in Kirk. Next year in Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you later. Bye. Thanks. See you. See you. Bye. Bye. -bye.